Hey, I'm Michael Wood, lead pastor at First West. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here in just a second, we're gonna dive into God's word and to see what it says about who he is, about who we are, and about the hope that can be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that today God's word will encourage you, it'll challenge you, and it'll allow you to see that no matter where we find ourselves, there's always hope because of Jesus Christ. So let's dig in and see what God has for us today in his word. If you've been watching any of these shows on television now that have to do with, with restoration, and I'm talking about like home restorations or vehicle restorations, any of y'all watching, watching some of those kind of things? I'm not sure what our fascination is with all of that, but there are a lot of those folks making a lot of money doing these programs these days. And uh, from houses and seeing cars being done, uh, restoration happens in a lot of ways, historical buildings. And I know we've, in our community, we've gotten to see some restorations happen in that. And, and that, that's always nice. Um, restoration is, is a term that's used uh, with forests, for instance, when, when trees are cut. And so there's a restoration project that's going on and replanting and helping to replenish that. And so today, uh, when it comes to restoration, we're probably a whole lot more acquainted with restoration when it regards these things. Um, have, have any of you ever had a tense moment or three and think you've lost everything, either on your smartphone device or your computer at home, and need to have it restored? Anybody? Yeah, the rest of y'all are still using stone tablets and stuff out there and, and just chiseling stuff in, I guess, right? <clears throat> it was never so heavy on me as when I was working on my doctoral project. And, you know, you write and write and write. And I mean, it's just like, you know, ultimately a couple hundred plus pages of, of, of work that you have done. And I cannot tell you, I'm not sure if I was OCD before but I think I grew into it during that time because I saved it and I'd email it to myself and I'd say everything I could do to make sure I didn't lose any of that data because it was important to me. Now, when it comes to these phones, the thing that we don't want to lose are our contacts, right? And we don't want to lose those photos because we're not cranking out those Polaroid photo albums that we had at Mamaw's house like we used to, where we would go there and we get to look at those things. I, mean, I love getting to go to my grandparents' house and look at all that stuff. Well, now they're, they're all on here. And so it matters to us that we are able to keep up with that. And whenever it goes out, then we have to have some restoration happen. And God bless those technicians out there that are savvy enough to be able to pull that off and help us to get that information that we need whenever we're afraid it's been gone. And that's happened for me uh, a couple of times, and I appreciate it. It's interesting that a lot of the interest in restoration has to do with nostalgia, the sentimental longing or affection of, of things in the past, inspired by these sweet memories of days gone by. And we don't want to lose that. And so whether it's getting that house restored or that automobile that was special, uh, whatever, it, whatever it is, there's just something that takes us back to maybe a time that was better in your life or you perceived to be better in your life or that you just enjoyed a whole lot more. So there's a lot of nostalgia involved in it. The, the term restoration is the action of returning something to a former owner, place, or condition. And restoration is needed when, when that original 
is damaged or it's decayed. It's not functioning in a way that it was designed. And so it's not ultimately fulfilling its purpose at the level that it needs to be. And there's a, a perceived decline in value. Have you done a restoration project yourself? Maybe a house or something like that that was important to you? You know the grind that it is. You know the weight that, that you feel walking through that. Well, when restoration happens, we know that it's not the same as the original. Even though we're able to do something and produce something that looks beautiful, it's not the same as it's not the same parts. It's not the same materials that are involved in that. But sometimes restoration can be even better than the original. I have read this, and you know I don't know this personally. I read this that wood in violins only resonates with more clarity as it ages. I have no experience with violins. I've watched people play them. I have an appreciation for folks that are skilled at doing that. But supposedly, this wood, uh, as it ages, it gets more, it gets, it, there's more clarity to it. And so it's preferable to restore that, that original wood by revarnishing and doing some of the touch-up work that needs to happen rather than, than, than replacing it. Restoration isn't just needed in regard to things that are inspired by nostalgia, people, us. We often need restoration as well, don't we? And there's a whole lot more at stake. I want to invite you to be turning in your Bibles to John chapter 21. As you're turning there, I want to help set the stage for you. Uh, John's gospel was written around 70 AD. That's about roughly 40 years after the crucifixion, somewhere up in that time frame. 40 years later, and there's a difference in John's gospel and in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels, and they, they give accounts, and it's kind of more, more historic uh, in, in nature, and it's written to, to different groups and, and kind of um, aimed at different crowds. John writes from a different perspective, and he is recognizing, he's acknowledging the deity of Jesus, that, that Jesus is God in, in the flesh and that we're able to have relationship with him. And so it's hugely significant, uh, the big picture of what he's writing. In fact, at the end of chapter 20, John gives the purpose for him writing this book. He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He just lays it right out there. This, this is the purpose. This is why I have written this. Well, remember that Peter, the apostle, had denied Jesus three times. Um, that was painful for him, that, that acknowledgement of what he had done right there. And so consider the, the psyche and the emotions that are involved for, for Peter after this had happened. And he had been near Jesus several times since the, since the resurrection. And so this is an incredibly interesting account that happens right here. Uh, we're not going to start reading until verse 7, but at, at the first few verses of, of, of chapter 21, uh, Simon Peter had decided that he was going fishing. And so he told that to six of the other disciples. So there's a total of seven of them. And he says, I'm going fishing, verse 3. And, uh, and they say, we're coming with you. Now, I mean, just imagine us, man, just us guys, ladies, if you're in the fishing and all, how you hear where we live and how we grew up, a lot of us. That, that's not an unusual thing to say. You know, you're sitting around and you're interested and maybe you're hungry uh, maybe you're bored. Maybe you just need to chill out and relax. Whatever your reason, it's not unusual to say, I'm going fishing. And if you got buddies that are sitting around you, when you say that out loud and they're available, what are they going to say? 
Come on. I'm, I'm, I'm in. So that's not an unusual kind of a thing to happen. This is the, the humanity here uh, is really helpful and important to us. So they go out, they get in the boat that night, they don't catch anything. So they're night fishing out there, which is a normal thing for them. It's cooler at night. Uh, different. What I mean, and these are guys, there's some professionals in this group too. Not all of them were professional fishermen, but several of them were. And so they knew what was up, but they were unsuccessful in their night of fishing. So Daybreak comes, Jesus is standing on the shore. The disciples don't recognize that it's Jesus, maybe because it was not light enough yet, or maybe because it's, we know that he was about 100 yards away. It's hard to see. We also know from other accounts and earlier uh, here in the Gospels that, that uh, Jesus, after the resurrection, was not readily identifiable for different reasons, whether um, he, he was in a different form himself and just looked differently, his appearance was different, or we know one of the Gospel accounts talks about how their eyes were held, that, that they couldn't see that for, for whatever reason. The Lord had not allowed them to really, really fully see who Jesus was, but they, they couldn't tell. And so this guy if you will, they don't know it's Jesus, yells out to them, friends, you don't have any fish, do you? Now, th that could have been said several ways. You don't have any fish, do you? Or, you don't have any fish, do you? I don't know how he said it. I don't know what the, what the you know, just the tone was or whatever right there, but they answered honestly, no. And so he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Now, let me just call a timeout right here. As men, as sporting men, we can be a little prideful, can't we? What's this dude talking about? We've been out here all night. He's way over there. He's on land. What in the world does he think he is doing telling us to fish this way instead of the way we've been fishing? We're pros at this. That would be normal for a lot of men to do. Wives, be kind. Don't be elbowing them. You see what happens then. <laughs> but they don't do that. For whatever reason, they, they uh, agree. And so they, they do that. And we, you know what happened, man? They, they caught so many fish, they couldn't haul it all in. And, and uh, the disciple, the one that Jesus loved, is, that's John who wrote this. That's, that's the, uh, a term for him. Said to Peter, he told him, it's the Lord. Maybe only the Lord could do that or something happened that caused him to recognize that it is the Lord. When Simon Peter, well, I'll tell you what, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to go ahead and read this together. Now I've got you caught up to verse seven. Would you stand with me in honor of the reading of the Lord's word? And we're going to read verses seven through 19. The disciple, the one Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off, and plunged into the sea, since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away. And the other, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, may we see this. May we understand your truth. May we apply it to our lives in a way that brings you honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Today, we're looking at this beautiful truth that our God is a God of restoration. That's good news. Our God's a God of restoration. First thing we see here in this passage is that restoration begins with willingness. There has to be a willingness. Jesus exhibited a willingness. He was there where the disciples were. He had himself gone and, and, and engaged with them. He had gotten near to them. They were trying to figure out probably what to do next. They had been used to following Jesus. They had been walking with him, and they had been serving alongside him. They had benefited and been blessed by his teaching, and that was their, that was their lifestyle. But now that's changed. And so trying to figure out and just the uncertainty of what to do, and, and here they are in, in this environment. There has to be a willingness. Jesus is willing, and so he goes to them. We know that Jesus, in the big picture, is always willing to forgive. Jesus is the willing agent of restoration. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's, that's what he's about. That's how he operates. That, that's what he cares about. Jesus is about restoration. Now, Peter, he, was, uh, he, he had to participate as well. You see, restoration, um, forgiveness can happen without restoration. But restoration can't happen without forgiveness. It, it, it doesn't work that way. And so here he is, and um, Jesus is there. And Jesus is available, and he is ready, and he is willing, but Peter has to be willing as well. Peter, what is his part? Well, he's got to respond to Jesus. And so what does he do? Now, we know that there have been a couple of times where Peter has already responded to Jesus. We know that in, in repentance, right after uh, the third denial, when he heard that rooster crow, that, that it grabbed him, and he was brokenhearted about it. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that Peter's response that was that he was brokenhearted. Luke said that he, he went outside and wept bitterly. He was overcome with sorrow and remorse. So he had done the very thing that he vowed not to do, but Jesus had told him that he would. So his heart was broken for that. There, there's a repentant spirit about it. And the second thing that we see where Peter's willing is that he jumped out of the boat to come to Jesus. Look at this. He, he tied his outer clothing around him. He had taken it off. Now, they were comfortable, man. They were out there, I mean, just, you know, fishing, guys out, I mean, shirts off, you know, do, doing what they needed to be able to do. 
And for whatever reason, Peter was compelled to, to put his garment around him, whether it was modesty, whether it's Eastern cultural type thing, whether it was out of respect for, for Jesus, what have you. He, he puts his clothing around him, and then he, he plunges into the sea. Now, a hundred yards is not that far unless you just put all your clothes back on and jumped in the water. hundred yards becomes a pretty good distance at, at, at that point. And so Peter is willing. Um, he, he is wanting to be, be near. That is interesting. He was willing to do his part. Jesus had already done his part. Now, verse 9, I love this. It says, they got out on land. They saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. That's a good amen spot right there, right? There's a charcoal fire. He's, he's cooking. This is good news. Now, charcoal fire might trigger something in your memory back to the fire that, that night that Jesus was denied by Peter. It was described as a charcoal fire that they were warming up around. And so can you see the stage being set here for, for Jesus really trying to communicate and to kind of penetrate uh, and get through to Peter here? So Jesus is cooking fish for them, uh, having breakfast for them. And very interestingly, this, this net that's, that's full of large fish, large fish, amen, large fish, not a bunch of little old ones, bunch of large fish, 153 of them. Did you hear that? This is right at 40 years later after Jesus, after the resurrection, and this specific number is given right here, 153 of them. Now, there have been those that have proposed ideas and theories and tried to use some, some number tricks and numerology and try to make some kind of spiritual connection to the number 153. You may have heard some of those things out there. None of that stuff, as religious as it sounds or as cool and as connected as it sounds, none of that can be backed up by Scripture. We can't, you can't make Scripture say things that it doesn't say. 153 is because John gives details. John is precise. And don't you know that it had to be significant because, listen, We've all got our own fishing stories or hunting stories, right? That, that some of them that were in really impactful to us from years and years ago. Man, we, we've got those stories we love to tell. And whenever we get an opportunity, we're going to tell that story. And our kids and grandkids may get tired of us telling those stories, but man, that, that, that's something good. We, we want to have a special memory. We want to teach a point about it or whatever. So this story was fresh 40 years later to the point that, man, you remember that time? 153 fish. Man, that was 40 years ago. I'll never get over that. Now, look, we got some silly reasons for remembering the stuff that we remember, but it was a big deal for them, right? Think about the setting. Think about what had happened. It was significant. 153 fish had been brought in when there had been none in the nets before. The Lord's always at work. The net wasn't torn. So Jesus says, come and have breakfast. And that had to be good news for them. They had to be hungry after that, that long night out there of being unsuccessful. And none of them, none of them wondered then at that point. None of them asked him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. They knew. Who else but the Lord could provide like that for them? 
Who else but the Lord could come through for them when they had great need? And so Jesus came, he took the bread and he gave it to them and he did the same with the fish. Jesus, again, serving them. Remember, back to the Last Supper, Jesus served him at the end of our service today. We're gonna experience that together, that act of servanthood, that act of identification that Jesus gives us the opportunity to make. So this was now the third time that Jesus appeared. Restoration takes a vision for what can be. God has that vision for us. He created us in his image. He, his desire is that we be conformed into the likeness of Christ as believers in Jesus. Our role is to allow ourselves to be conformed into the likeness of Jesus so that we look like him and we talk like him, we act like him, we respond the way that he does. That's what's going on. That's God's heart for restoration for us. In a restoration project, you begin with the end in mind, don't you? I see what is, but I'm thinking about what can be. And I know that what can be is way better. There's an original design. There's a plan that is great, and we want to get things back to that plan right there. Well, God has a plan for us to be restored to him. David, remember I said it, it takes willingness. David, the king, the one who had sinned, though, a man after God's own heart. I mean, they walked closer together, and then he blew it in a big way. And Psalm 51 records his prayer, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. You hear that? Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Restoration requires willingness. God's willing. Are we? Are you running to him or are you running from him? Are you running to him or are you just kind of hanging out, staying back in the boat? Second thing we see is that restoration brings shared purpose. Verses 15 through 17. Now this is an intense encounter right here. They, they, breakfast is over. So Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now notice he didn't say Peter. He says Simon. Why? Maybe this. Because Peter was the name that Jesus gave him and said, hey, I'm, now I'm going to call you Peter Petra because on this rock I will build my church. Peter had not been acting like much of a rock to build a church on, had he? Peter had declined. Peter had been, had, had, was, was separate. He, he, was, he was in a different kind of state right there. And so he calls him Simon. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? These what? you love me more than these fish? I, I don't know that that would be it. Do you love me more than these disciples, your brothers? Maybe that. Or do you love me more than these disciples love me? We're not really sure exactly what he's asking for right here, but the question is there, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Now, it's interesting, um, this, this, this love and this word for love. We, we just use the word love. In, in the Greek language, in Greek writing, there's several different words for love. Uh, the one that we're most familiar with is agape. 
That's that, that selfless kind of love, that I love you anyway kind of love, the kind of love that God has for us, for his people. So when Jesus asked him, do you love me? He's like, do you agape me more than these? And Simon says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But he used a different word for love, phileo. That's the one that we generally acknowledge is that that brotherly love is still a, a tender kind of love. Um, we you know, think about the city of Philadelphia. It's called the city of brotherly love. That's that word that kind of comes there. Now, a lot of times in Scripture, um, the agape and phileo, they, they really ultimately accomplish the same thing. So I don't want to overplay that too much, but there is a difference in that. Simon says, you know that I phileo. Jesus said, and feed my lambs. He gives them a command. It's a significant leadership role. Man, this, this, this responsibility to feed my lambs, feed what? Man, the word of God. Man, this is the, the bread of life, you know, that, that, that you have responsibility. So right there, Jesus is reestablishing Peter to what he had called him to do. There was still significance that Jesus saw in Peter, and he is calling him out from the overwhelming shame and embarrassment and guilt of, of denying him. There's still purpose in you. Hey, feed my lambs. And then a second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Again, agape love. And Peter's response, you know that I love you. Phileo, love. He says, shepherd my sheep. Another command, a pastoral role, a pastoral function, significant role that in addition to feeding them and giving them the word, taking care of those young ones, those little ones, those lambs, helping them to come along in the faith, the people that are part of the flock that, that you're blessed with, hey, you shepherd them, you care about them, you lead them in the right way. And he is underscoring that role, that responsibility he wants him to have. And then verse 17, he asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? But this time he uses phileo, not agape. He uses Peter's word, the one that Peter had been responding with. And Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? Now, you wonder about this grief that Peter's having. You think about it, man. If somebody says, man, do you, do you really love me? Now, do you really, really love me? No, seriously, do you really, really love me? After a little bit, kind of get your feelings hurt. Kind of start, what, why, what would cause him to say that? Well, the, the reality was that none of the other disciples had denied Jesus three times. And Peter had been known to be just a little bit arrogant about his status and his standing. He thought that he was a little bit tougher than the other guys. He thought that he was a little bit more committed than them. That, that, that no matter what these do, hey, you got me, I'm with you. And I think Jesus was helping old Peter to realize that, you know, maybe you're not everything that you thought that you were. Maybe you need to have some humility about you. And so these three questions that Jesus asked Peter kind of correspond with the three times that he denied him. It's kind of hard to miss that, that there, there ought to be some kind of a, a, kind of, kind of a connection right there. When there's unforgiveness, we're not in line, not looking out for others' interests. Restoring relationships brings shared purpose for caring for each other and glorifying God. The shared purpose that Jesus calls Peter to, to make sure that his sheep are tended to, Jesus is no longer going to be physically present to be able to take care of them. And so he lays that out there for Peter. 
And he gives them that responsibility. And that had to be weighty. And it might have hurt his feelings a little bit. But Jesus had to make sure that he got it. Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And in his response right there, you know everything, he acknowledged that Jesus wasn't just a good teacher, that he wasn't just uh, even just the Messiah, that deliverer. Remember, they were looking for a military kind of deliverer or conqueror. He acknowledged that because he said, you know everything. Hey, knowing everything, that, that omniscience, that's a God quality. Deity can do that. Man can't do that. So Peter is acknowledging the deity of Jesus. You know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. A shared purpose that Jesus is calling Peter back into. Paul said this to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and see, the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the spirit and the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. So we're included in this. Peter specifically had a role that Jesus pointed him to. Scripture tells us as believers in Jesus that we are ambassadors for Christ since God's making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Restoration brings shared purpose. The third thing we see is that restoration brings assurance and direction. Assurance and direction. Peter had to have wondered if he'd ever be used by God. If he was worthy of being used by God again, what would his life be about now that, that he had denied Jesus? And so Jesus gives him some real direction. And in verse 18 and 19, that direction really gets intense. He talks about how when you were younger, you'd tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands. Someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. That's a picture of what was going to happen to Peter, that he was going to die like Jesus did by crucifixion. They would tie their hands to that cross and tie their feet to the cross and then drive those nails through the palm of the wrist there. And he's pointing ahead to that. Now, that gives assurance, interesting word there, assurance, but it was assurance that, Peter, you're in. You're part of the plan. And it gives him direction that this is the way that your life is going to go. And Peter obviously embraced that, that it was so moving, and he was so honored that the Lord would, would consider him in this way that Peter served him the rest of his life. I already said that he, he ultimately lost his life for the gospel. What if Jesus had not established Peter to his ministry? What if Jesus had not done the restoration project in Peter? Well, Acts 2 would be a lot different. There's a sermon that Peter preaches at Pentecost, and the power of the Holy Spirit is there. And 3,000 people responded that day. 3,000. The, the New Testament church began right there. That was significant. Peter was restored. Then Peter later wrote the letter to these believers that were scattered in exile that we know today is the book of 1 Peter. And he gives some really important instructions to the church elders that shows how much Jesus' charge to him had inspired his life. He, 
he, he said to them, these elders, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly. Here is the one who had been told to feed my sheep, to feed my lambs, to shepherd my flock, pouring into others saying, shepherd, God, shepherd God's flock among you. And he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. He's pointing ahead. It changed everything about Peter, this restoration did. It says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter had had that burned into him, that he wasn't arrogant anymore about how much more he was close to the Lord, or how much more committed to the Lord than he was in others. He said, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And look at this in verse 10. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. Peter pointed to, to restoration. These were the man, the words of a man that had been restored to a close relationship with Jesus and it changed everything for him. He became humble and became a leader. Unforgiveness brings brokenness. But restoration brings trust and, and direction back to our relationships. Restoration increases value and it brings joy. You think about the beauty of that. You think about that desired outcome that you have in mind. Yeah, we can watch a 30-minute television program and we can enjoy seeing something go from a mess to something that is beautiful and functional. And that's encouraging and that's inspiring to us. But you need to know and understand that the Lord wants to do that in our lives. And if you walk with Jesus, then you are a product of restoration. You know how you used to be. And you know that he makes all things new. That's what he does. In 1982, President Ronald Reagan commissioned the restoration project of the Statue of Liberty so that it would coincide in 1986 with the centennial celebration there. And so it was a massive project. It took several years. It cost lots and lots of money. It took lots and lots of manpower. But why was it so significant? Well, because what the Statue of Liberty represents, man, for us as Americans, it represents freedom. It represents the opportunity for people that are harassed and helpless to be able to come and to have the opportunity for a life and enjoy the freedoms that we have as Americans. And so it's important that that image represents something so significant that that image be properly maintained. It's a travesty for something that's so important to not be maintained well. Well, as important it is for the Statue of Liberty to look good and to be a great representation of our nation and the liberties that we have here, how much more important is it for us as believers in Jesus to walk in restoration with the Father? The end of the book points ahead to what's to come. John, John's revelation. He said, I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. That's good news. We live in a fallen world. There's a lot of pain in this world. There's pain from sin. There's pain just from being part of, of the fallen state of the world that we're in right now. But there'll be a day when that stuff is no more. And then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things and I will be his God. 
and he will be my son. There is coming a day when this mess that we lament a lot is going to be made right. Jesus is going to come back and he will restore. He will restore. Scripture calls it what, what the locusts have devoured. He will make things right. That day is coming. In the meantime, are you living a life of restoration? Would you consider yourself to be restored in Jesus Christ? I want to ask that you bow with me here as we close our time. I don't want to ask you, if you're a believer in Jesus, and you know that you are not where you used to be in your walk with him, I want to ask that you would be honest with the Lord and just confess that and say, Lord, I know that it's not like it used to be between us, and that's on me. And I want to be restored. I know that you've done your part. And so like Peter, I want to do my part. I'm going to jump out of this boat, and I want to go towards you, and I want to receive the forgiveness and the restoration that you provide. Would you just, in the quietness of this moment, your heart to God, would you just express that to him? If you'd have to be honest and say that you don't know where you stand with Jesus because you, maybe you've never responded to a relationship with him, you have not done what the scripture says and confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, believed in him so strongly that you let it change the way you live your life. If you haven't done that, then right now in the quietness of this moment, would you just lift this prayer to the Lord? I'll pray out loud, but you pray silently your heart to God's God. I realize that you love me, that you sent your son Jesus to pay a price that I couldn't pay, to restore me into a relationship with you. And so today, I admit that I'm a sinner and I receive your forgiveness. I want to live for you from this day forward and bring you honor and glory with my life. And so take over my life. Make me what you created me to be for your honor and glory. And I mean this with all my heart in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope, again, that you were encouraged by what God had to say for you and for your life. I just want to extend an invitation for you today. Maybe today you realize that you need Jesus in your life. Maybe today you just need to take that next step in your spiritual walk, or maybe you've got a spiritual need. And I want you to know that we would love to come alongside you and serve you any way that we can. Feel free to reach out to us at firstwest.cc, or you can call the church, 318-322-5104. And we would love to help you in what God is doing in your life. Have a great day.